welcome to the Seventh Art Cinema Podcast. We are also a video magazine on cinema, which you can find at www.theseventhart.org. My name is Brian Robertson. I am a producer on the show, and joining me is Christopher Heron, who is a producer and host of the show. The interview you're about to hear is with British documentary filmmaker Lucy Walker, who had uh, her most recent film at that time, The Crash Reel, play at Hot Docs in 2013. The film is about um, uh, U.S. snowboarder Kevin Pierce, who had a traumatic brain injury um, while snowboarding in a superpipe. At the time, he was probably America's top snowboarder, um, just above Sean White, who also makes an appearance in the film. It's a really affecting documentary that a lot of people have been talking about, especially on social media, it seems. Like it played on, in, on cable in the States and is about to have its wider VOD release, having you know played the festival circuit. And it, it's a, a film that I think people are going to continue to talk about. It's also a cause that is continuing to get attention, which is uh, head injuries, uh, specifically TBI and it's something that Kevin Pierce is an advocate for mm -hmm. currently. We talked to Lucy about this film, but also how it relates to her other documentaries, and we kind of used it as a entry point to talk about Countdown to Zero, Wasteland, Blindsight, and uh, Devil's Playground, uh, which is how she developed her reputation as a documentary filmmaker. Lucy's really candid, and uh, she gives a lot of really great insight into the making of each of these fairly comprehensive documentaries and mostly the crash reel which is maybe her most ambitious one yet mm -hmm. hope you enjoy shoot multi-camera these days. Yeah, usually we have three, sometimes four. Wow. Um, we're doing kind of run and gun for hot dogs, but... I love it. Yeah. I mean, usually we film in bars, and this is kind of like a... I don't know what this is. I took American literature in this classroom. Oh, did you? <laughs> so... Oh, that's right. Oh, right. It's an interesting dynamic, and we've got this kind of Frost Nixon thing going on here as well. That's right. Yeah. It's, in, it's intense. It's good. Okay. Um, when I was watching the crash reel, one thing that stood out to me was the amount of names associated with the film. And I was wondering if you could maybe just begin by sussing out what happened, like how it happened, what the production, like how it came to be, because it was, seems like it was, yeah. for obvious reasons, kind of unusual. Ooh, were there more names than normal? That's interesting. I always feel like we had a tiny team. Yeah. And it was kind of tight. We had, um, I feel like we, we were a small team, actually. Um, it happened when I just met Kevin. So I happened to be volunteering as a mentor at a retreat for Nike-sponsored athletes. And part of me, I guess, was thinking, ooh, I wonder if there's a documentary in the world of extreme sports. It would be really neat to meet some young athletes and see what their world is like. But I wasn't thinking really about that. I was mostly just thinking, oh, the people inviting me are really cool, and they had this beautiful idea to inspire athletes to use their platform for social change or, you know, to use their platform to say something really meaningful to them. And I thought that was a beautiful goal. 
and I was happy to be a part of it and to show my film Wasteland. This was 2010, I'd just finished Wasteland and um, I met Kevin and instantly thought, wow, this is a remarkable young man with a remarkable story. Like, somebody should make a movie about this. And to start with, I didn't know if it would be me. I didn't know if the story had happened already. I don't want to just make films that I can make. I want to make films that elevate the craft, that do the very best uh, to challenge me as a filmmaker, to grow and learn and, and innovate and, you know, be the best filmmaker I can be and sort of push the craft just as I guess Kevin is pushing the sport. And I didn't want to do a like talking heads, retrospective kind of film where everyone sits around and says what happened already. And a couple of things, I guess, encouraged me that that wasn't going to be the case. One was that I could see that the story was not over, that Kevin, even though he just crashed, there was very much a future and a story and a dramatic question, like what on earth is he going to do? Because he was bent on doing dangerous stuff, but his doctors were saying that if he hit his head again, he would die. And he couldn't do what he loved to do without hitting his head pretty frequently, because that's what you do when you are a top snowboarder. And and I sort of saw this just collision course and I wondered what was going to happen. And I, that's the kind of question that makes me think, hmm, I've got to make the movie to find out the answer for myself. Um, all my films have a kind of unanswerable question that I want to kind of get in there and explore and find out more about and kind of sort out in my head. And then secondly, someone mentioned that the crash itself, Kevin's life-changing crash on December 31st, 2009, had been filmed by coincidence. And I thought, wow, if that was just filmed by chance, imagine how much more footage is going to be out there in the world. And I guess I thought of Senna, which is a brilliant film, obviously, that was pieced together retroactively using the contest footage. But for these kids, it's more than contest footage. They've been shot by friends, by sponsors, by magazines. You know, they're just at the forefront of this crazy video world that we live in. Um, and I had this idea it would be really fun to track down all this footage and tell the story and excavate what's actually happened and and edit it and I love editing and I love music and watching snowboarding is so visual and beautiful I knew it would make an amazing film so I um, was hooked and Kevin was also very inspired to try and tell the story he wants people to understand what he's been through and so he kept calling me and then forgetting he'd call me and calling me again. And I kept calling him and remembering that I'd called him and getting lots of work you know, done. Um, he was a little impatient to start with. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we're getting it together. You know, We need to sort of, um, there's a few things we need to sort out first. And anyway, so, but we, we got going and um, were able to shoot a lot, but also uh, find a lot of existing footage as well. So it's a pretty seamless blend of this existing footage which we got from 232 different people. Um, some of them conventional vendors like X Games and Olympics and contests and, and others that were really um, all kinds of different people that had shot different pieces. It was really exciting to track it all down and quite an quite a insane job as well. I mean, it was really... Um, we had three different people called Florian, each of which was in a different country. And a lot of 
quite flaky people, like who'd been filming and snowboarding, but then broke up with their girlfriend or like had moved state and lost their storage locker key or whatever it would be. But it was like a lot of um, work to try and get a hold of this footage um, or else you'd get a little clip, um, but it wasn't the whole thing or it was low res or whatever. So it was just a really, but really fun work. And we had an amazing team, especially my editor, Pedro Cos, my editor, the world's editor. He's an amazing editor. And I feel sure, unfortunately, that I talked him up so much that I'm never going to get to work with him ever again. <laughs> he worked also on my film Wasteland with me, and I felt sure at that time I'd never get to work with him again. And I was lucky enough to um, uh, be able to work with him again this time. Um, but he and I had such a wonderful collaboration, have identical taste in music, and, and really like a Vulcan mind melt. So we'd have typically very similar notes and really um, just really enjoy diving in and and really enjoy really detailed edit. It was an incredible edit process. There's a lot of cuts in that film. Well, it's kind of the, the central tension of the film too, is like all this footage exists. And the footage yeah. is kind of what leads to the expectation of I'm the superstar, I need yeah. to continue, like, this is the only life I've ever known. Yeah. Like when, when Kevin's kind of struggling with that, like I will always be a snowboarder, that's, yeah. it, it seems like the, the media is also playing a, like, a role in that. And I'm wondering yeah. if that's something you felt with the documentary as well, like when you were shooting it, was that maybe at any level contributing to his maybe subconscious feeling that he needs to maintain this personality that is the, yeah. the impetus behind the documentary? Good question. I always felt like we were on his side and we always had an understanding with Kevin, even when a lot of other people would say, yo, when are you gonna get back snowboarding, Kevin? And we'd all know that that wasn't realistic, that he was never gonna be able to compete again. Um, and so we were much more on Kevin's side um, than a lot of the other media who didn't really know the story. I think it was so easy for people to think that it was a comeback story and not to understand the nature of his injury and how even though he was making great progress, he just wasn't gonna get back to the level he was at. Um, and how devastating that is for him. And how extra devastating it is when he knows that, but everyone else doesn't and keeps saying, yay, when are you gonna get back? You've got to beat Sean White. And it's just um, this refrain of this movie. And so your heart really goes out to him. But I feel like we weren't contributing to, to that. If anything, I think um, we gave him kind of a purpose in, in advocacy in explaining to people what his brain injury was all about, what he'd been through, telling people the truth of the story in a way that was probably too awkward or too much of a pain for him to personally do. I mean, it's, it's, he doesn't want to have to sit down and explain to people probably what all he's been through, but the film really tells that story. Mm. Um, and for example, when we screened at the X Games, a lot of his friends just love him so much and know him and he's the announcer there now and he's such a beloved figure in the sport but nobody had any idea what he'd been through and it really shocked and moved so many people to see wow I had no I thought I knew what he'd gone through but I did not know at all. But that has to do with the footage like the actual crash that you were lucky yeah. to have footage of and yeah and me I'm curious how you use that like there's there's yeah. maybe the it's repeated which is great because yeah. it kind of hammers home that point like you want to look away yeah. But like, were there any aesthetic choices, like, worried about maybe assuaging the anxiety at any level? Like, sometimes there's music, other times there's not. Like, mm. I'm curious how that was handled 
visually, like that key moment? Yeah, well, we worked a lot on it and tried a lot of different ways. Um, uh, there's an instinct not to want to include it because it's gory and horrifying. But there's also an uh, instinct that people watch crashes. There's YouTube crashes are everywhere. It's why we call it the crash reel mm. because every um, extreme sports star, every extreme sports film company um, will have a crash reel of their best crashes. And it's interesting here at Toronto, um, for example, we had this fantastic high school screening. And for the first time people see the crash, they laugh thinking, oh, that's a great one. Uh, but it's great that they do because then the whole rest of the film is there to explain, oh, it's not just some glamorous, it's not a video game mm. where you get another life and another game. You know, this is somebody's real life and, and what is the reality of these um, things that we sort of rubberneck mm. on YouTube? And, and, and so what happened with the high school kids, they'd laugh and then they'd realize, oh God, this is real. And then they'd get sucked right in. I wanted to put it at the beginning because I wanted to flag to people. I, want it, I guess the dramatic devices in medias res. I wanted to put people in the middle of the story. I didn't wanna get too far into people thinking it was an ordinary snowboarding movie. I wanted to give them a tip off that we were gonna take things in a different direction mm. because the movie is, awesome for snowboarding fans, but it's also awesome for people who have no interest at all in snowboarding. And so we wanted to bring both audiences in. And if we just started off with the chronological thing, I felt like um, we wouldn't have, it, it would be a different thing. So I wanted to put the opening in the front and to really start with the accident, but, but also not let that be the end of the story. Like I think, um, for me, that is the, the beginning of Kevin's really important journey. Um, and it's fun to sort of start there and then find out how he got there and then, and then find out how he moves on from there sort of dramatically. Um, and we had all this footage that was remarkable from five different places of the crash and to piece it together. Um, and I really like the way that we rewind afterwards back to his childhood and yeah. show how he got there, then kind of reprise, kind of, we sort of do a quick recap of what happened and then culminating in that moment. And then we pick it up and go and tell what happens next. So I think it makes, I, I'm really happy with the structure. I don't yeah. know if I've ever seen a structure quite like that in a movie, but it's a very strong, simple, easy to follow. I like it. I think good, simple structures can be good. Yeah. Um, to follow and and I like it that it's a lot of snowboarding at the beginning and you get really wrapped up in the story of the rivalry between Hinshaw and Michelle Wine and it's exhilarating and it and then you like Kevin you experience this total change of pace mm. when the accident kicks in you know and everything in the film I wanted to have from Kevin's point of view another stylistic choice that I guess was so obvious to me, but might not be to other filmmakers, was not to use Kevin interview footage. Mm. So it would be easy and kind of great on many levels to have Kevin sitting there talking about what all he went through, but it would ruin the journey that the audience goes on. I'm all about creating a journey for the audience and not just doing a talking heads kind of mm. thing and actually creating an emotional arc and then taking you know, audiences on a really disciplined, in its structure 
emotional arc, you know, and in suppressing any footage of interviews and stuff like that, and any, you, you only, you're only with Kevin as things unfurl. You're never today looking back. Mm. Um, and that's really deliberate. I didn't even contemplate doing it any other way. Um, but I think that's, in a way, the central device of the film, is you, you're on that journey with Kevin the whole way, and you never know what's going to happen next. You're speaking specifically about more contemporary interviews as opposed to like when he was yeah, exactly. a, a professional. Yeah, exactly, because there's loads of fun stuff at the time yeah. that we use. I mean, you, 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 we have so much great material that we can license from mm, yeah. the, the, as it unfolds. Exactly, but we never sit him down today and, and, or show him today um, or show him even a later date looking back. It's always just um, as it happens um, in, in terms of the chronology for Kevin. Um, a couple of his friends make comments that um, do tell about the accident from l looking back um, from interviews that's woven into the verite footage, but uh, not Kevin. I'm, I'm interested with the other aspect of the structure where you kind of branch out with the family because I, yeah. I think that's also the point where the Sean White kind of drifts back. It does yeah. seem like that's the central kind of bookending narrative that occurs, yeah. um, especially when you bring Sean White back in near the end, and you're like, oh yeah. yeah, Sean White, like I completely forgot about Sean White. Yeah. But the, the, the dynamic of like pushing that professional stuff aside, going to the family, yeah. and then coming back to it. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about that. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, again, I wanted to show the reality. I mean, Kevin was off traveling the world with his friends crew with mm -hmm. no eye in friends, because yeah. there's no eye in friends, and having the time of his life, I mean, living the teenage dream. And then suddenly, bam, you know, his friends were actually wonderful and stuck with him, but it's, but that's the moment where your family steps in and um, suddenly it's all about your family and all the help that you need and all the support that you need. And, um, and so again, just taking the audience, putting the audience in Kevin's shoes and really experiencing that change of pace and him and Sean didn't, have, their paths didn't cross for that whole period until the very end when mm. Kevin's back on the scene and announcing and watching Sean get the perfect score and announcing while Sean's competing, which is a really different um, role. And um, something else that was eerie, I guess, was how Kevin and Sarah's paths had crossed so many times and we kind of included that. That was eerie to put together, not eerie, but kind of so affecting and moving in the editing room and um, telling her story, which is a huge part of the story as well. Um, and yeah, weaving her in as well. And that's kind of where the media is also. One thing I wanted to talk about was how yeah. like you don't kind of didactically say like you were mentioning earlier about the media how they treated it like oh he's going to come back and you see that yeah. you see that footage where you know they're like oh hopefully we'll see him again someday yeah. but you don't say like this is like really irresponsible the way that they're handling yeah. it. Um, that and the, the way they treat Sarah as well seems like, again, like they're surprised because they yeah. have not bothered to pay attention to this aspect of, yeah. of action sports. And it's kind yeah. of the same with the, the Sean White angle. Like you don't didactically say like, oh, he was just absent. Like he was yeah. not a friend. Like he yeah. was a bitter rival, but it kind of yeah. becomes clear through the montage. Like yeah. I, I was wondering if you could speak a, a bit about some of the aspects that maybe were more subtle uh, conclusions that were maybe placed into the form but maybe uh, not so much into the, the narrative? Yeah, well, I like films that ask questions and are complicated like life and, um, you know, everyone's doing the best that they can like they are in real life. And um, 
uh, and don't tell the audience what to think. Yeah. And a verite based, even though I kind of enrich verite with interviews or, you know, great visuals or, you know, all montages, I'm always trying to sort of tell the story more impactfully than just with straight verite. However, um, I don't want to tell people what to think because I don't think life is that simple. And um, I think there's, it's such a complicated world, you know, and, and how much risk is too much risk. And, and the story, I love Kevin and Sean are like brothers, you know, it's like an amazing journey that they're on. And now actually they're closer again and they have this new announcer competitor relationship. Um, and uh, life's like that for me too, you know, it's so many twists and turns and suddenly somebody you're locked in a rivalry with, mm. like some twist in the road happens and you, one of you's in a whole new situation in life. I mean, that's really r resonates with reality, I guess, for me. And um, so I guess I don't like advocacy pieces. I did one film, Countdown to yeah. Zero, that was much more like an issue topic film. Yeah. And all my other films have been much more character driven, uh, verite driven um, narrative. Um, with a strong dramatic structure and a strong narrative drive, because I, I really like that in documentaries, and I think that life can have a very strong narrative, and it's very satisfying as a filmmaker, so I really like constructing that. I'm a definitely a narrative filmmaker mm. using real life as my subject. Yeah. Lucky enough to be working in this time where we have these wonderful, uh, like these cameras, wonderful um, affordable portable cameras, and uh, fantastic nonlinear editing. Oh my gosh, you could never have made this film without um, uh, heads. Avid or yeah. Final Cut Pro. It just back in the day when you had old like Steenbeck editing, this would have driven people crazy because um, we had mountains of material. I mean, it just wouldn't have been. We had 19 terabytes of material or something. I mean, I don't even know what that looks like in film. I think it would be like a skyscraper full of bits of celluloid, you know, just be, at least, I mean, I don't know, I would just be unmanageable. So I'm lucky enough to have that, but I want it to be a narrative. And I think life can be if you, hmm. you know, sometimes very narrative and, 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 and that's great. Um, and yeah, the one film I did, Counter to Zero, was emphatically a different kind of a project. It was, you know, a real exploration of the issue of nuclear weapons um, in the world today, but not at all like all these, that's the real outlier and all these other films are very much, I think, people think they're very different. I think they're very similar because they follow a remarkable personal group of people. In this case, really Kevin, but also Sarah and also his friends and family um, through an exceptional journey in a fascinating world. Mm -hmm. And with beginning, middle, and end, like a lot of story. There's a lot of story in this movie, and I think it's very compelling. And um, so, uh, yeah. But to I, that end, is the ending yeah. kind of redemptive? Like the credit sequence with the, the double snowboarding? Like yeah, for the, me, I love that credit sequence. Yeah. Not just because it's such a gorgeous credit sequence, and it was really fun to place the credits over the black. Yeah. and. I just love good credits, but these are really like my favorites I've ever done. It was really, really fun to put them together. But also it was fun um, because there's a great song as well. When we get, one day when we get old, it begins, but it's just a really fun, mad song. And 
it kind of zooms all the way out with Kevin and Sean and just puts their amazing rivalry in kind of in that perspective of a lifetime. And this was their youthful, like athletic high point was them driving each other, you know, to these such, such great heights that, that Kevin fell, I think. Um, and, but when you sort of pull back and look at the lifetime of that, I can think that song kind of does that for me and you kind of zoom right out and, and see a lifetime in a perspective, which I really like, especially with these, oh, excuse me, longitudinal documentaries, which are my favorite, you can almost glimpse life happening. I mean, we've already watched like 24 years in Verite. Mm -hmm. I mean, his childhood, we, we skim past real quick, but you're basically seeing 24 years compressed into a feature length film. And um, it's really stunning. And then to zoom out and thinking, how does this place in the future for them right. as they, they're young men now? So it's a really fun credit sequence from that point of view. And kind of, I think it celebrates their youthful, it celebrates and shows them that they had more in common than mm. they might think when they were youthful rivals. I actually think it zooms out and says that they were kind of brothers in arms at that moment. Mm. Now, so you started this after the tragedy, I, I assume. Right? That's exactly right. So, um, placing it next to the tsunami and the yeah. cherry blossoms, was that something that you began before, or was that again I after the I shot earthquake? tsunami during this. In fact, I remember speaking to Kevin on the phone during tsunami and cherry blossom shooting. And so I did that during. And I really like to work that way when I'm shooting one film over a long period mm. of time but you're kind of just banking the shoots until the time when you go full time into the editing room, when you sort of get the edit room going, hire the editor and um, start editing, then it becomes for me a super full time job um, because I like to be in the editing room as much as possible and be very, I'm very involved in, in the whole of post from the very, from the very beginning. So, um, and that was about a year ago in this case. So I was really, um, I think it was a quick edit that we started editing in May and we finished at Sundance, but it was, it was quick and a lot of work. But it was um, full time then, but prior to that was like two and a half years or two years of, of, of um, just very sporadic shoots. When mm. Kevin had doctor's appointments or something interesting was happening, we'd mm. go have a shoot and check in with him periodically. But it was by no means like a full time thing. Yeah. What was the impetus behind doing Tsunami and Cherry Blossoms? Tsunami and Cherry Blossom, funny, I was, um, I had actually been promoting, I had two films come out, premiere at Sundance 2010, so January 2010, my films Wasteland and Countdown came out. And both of them took a lot of work to promote after I'd finished them. And I was exhausted from, because I'd kind of done them back to back and was completely exhausted. But then promoting them, Wasteland was such a phenomenon that it was just sort of like holding on and keeping on going. But it, it, it sort of took off and it, it sort of required a lot more attention in a, be in a beautiful way, just because it was so beloved and so picked up by all these festivals and stuff. And Countdown to Zero was very important and I wanted to promote, support it just because it's a, such a difficult issue. And you have to sort of uh, work to, to actually push that agenda of people having a discussion about nuclear weapons. So, but I must say, 
By the time Wasteland was nominated in 2011, spring, I was exhausted. I had been promoting the films back to back and doing a lot of press. And honestly, I just wanted to shoot something. Um, and I'd been shooting some Kevin stuff, but I just didn't want to do any more interviews. And I had to go to Japan. I didn't have to, but I was invited to go to Japan to do a junket for Countdown to Zero that was coming out. And I thought, okay, I better do it because it's very important to me, Japan, in, in the context of nuclear weapons because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I, of course, I wanted to support the film there. And I was really pleased that Paramount was releasing it. And I love Japan, I have so many Japanese friends, I love Japan. But I was also a bit like, oh, it's so hard work talking about nuclear weapons. You have, it's so emotionally draining. You have to be so precise in what you're saying. It's such a technical subject. I mean, part of my job in that movie was making myself a real expert. And it was like defending a dissertation. You know, it was very, very elaborate, complicated, technical. And you had to be really, you couldn't, you know, get sloppy and warm and fuzzy talking about nuclear weapons. You have to be really on it. And, and so I was like, oh. And then just a bit daunted, I was thinking, oh. And then I realized, oh, it might be around cherry blossom season. So I arranged the trip. Actually, I could move the dates a little bit around. And I moved the dates around so that it would be during the peak cherry blossom season. And I thought, ah, oh, that'll cheer myself up. Because I've always just wanted to experience cherry blossom season in Japan. I've loved cherry blossom poetry, haiku, and just this idea that the Japanese have of when the blossoms come out, you just want to sort of sit under them and gaze at them and enjoy them. and. Uh, a bit like we're at in Toronto right now. It's a lovely time of year and a really great one for reflecting on life and the fragility and fleetingness of life. And they just are also great photographic subjects. So I've just always left photographing them and looking at them. And, and, and so I thought, oh, I'll take a few days and shoot some cherry blossom while I'm there. And that'll be really a treat to myself, if you like, to kind of make up for the fact that otherwise my, pre my trip was just like land, do press junket, Another day do press junket, another day do press junket, fly out. It just didn't look very um, fun. And so I thought at least this will be a way of reflecting. And I also arranged to go to the Hiroshima um, Peace Memorial, actually, which I'd never managed to go to. So I was excited about just taking a trip by myself there. That, um, and then I thought, oh, I should photograph it. And I persuaded a producer friend of mine to sort of organize that with me and we split the cost and we're going to make a little sh tiny short film like a haiku but visual out of cherry blossom. And I took a friend of mine who's a wonderful DP called Aaron Phillips and March 3rd we hatched this plan right after the Academy Awards and I was so excited because I was like I'm just going to go shoot something I don't have to do any more dresses and makeup and press about like stupid red carpet press I can just go to Japan and deal with nuclear weapons and make a little film about Cherry Blossom. March 3rd, we, we made that plan. Then March 11th, the tsunami happened. And I was, like everyone else, just horrified. And I guess one of my first thoughts was, phew, I, uh, you know, I don't think I have to go. And this is too scary. And they actually canceled the Release of count, they postponed the release of Countdown to Zero because there was they didn't need a nuclear panic right there. Of course, it was a really poor timing for the release of the film in light of the nuclear panic. So they postponed the release. I didn't need to go, but I had this gap in my schedule, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I kept thinking, wow, 
If I was going to make a film about cherry blossom season in Japan this year, you know, cherry blossom season for me is all about fleetingness and fragility of life. And Japan is the culture that sort of has this beautiful culture around that. Um, and what is cherry blossom gonna, season going to be like there this year where they've had such a colossal, horrific um, experience of the fragility and fleetingness of life? It's like, well, if I was going to make it before, I should definitely make it now because it'd be a much more important film now than it had been before when it was just any old cherry blossom season. And so I decided to do it and I had really cold feet and mixed feelings and I called up Aaron, my DP friend the night before and I said, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, this is such a stupid idea. I, I didn't mean to endanger us and what was I thinking? And, and he said, oh, shut up, Lucy. You always get cold feet before you do everything, anything. It's, it's a, an amazing idea and you shouldn't back down. I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, but I had tried to cancel the whole thing the night before, and then I said, okay. So we got there, and we were the only people flying into Japan. This was just a few days after the tsunami, and the customs people just were like looking shocked <laughs> that we were going the wrong way through the immigration line. And, um, and it was a crazy time to land in Tokyo, you know, like no street lights, rolling blackouts. Um, trains not working, um, uh, water uh, sold out and all drinks sold out in all the shops because the water and bit tap water in Tokyo even was contaminated. You couldn't rent a car, you couldn't get a hotel. It was just aftershocks all the time. And I'm an earthquake wimp. I became less of an earthquake wimp knowing, you know, having been there through that time. And there was this constantly gigantic um, earthquakes. But to start with, when you're jet lagged and there's like magnitude seven earthquakes and you're trying to get to sleep, um, it was uh, a petrifying time and then originally we, we couldn't get to the disaster zone and I just was going to make a film in Tokyo and Kyoto talking mm. to Japanese people there about everything but they kept saying to me that they, all they were thinking about was the people in that region in the north where the earthquake had struck and the tsunami and I kept thinking like I think that's what the film should be is telling their story because everyone here just wants to hear their story and I don't know it and um, and it, it was quite complicated to figure out how you could get there because um, there were no trains the train lines were destroyed there were no cars because so many people had lost their cars there were no hotels because there were rescue workers and displaced people um, re refugees um, and uh, so it was a, a disaster zone and there was contamination, the nuclear panic. Fortunately, with my nuclear weapons film, I was very nuclear savvy, mm. so I knew exactly you know, what was risky and what wasn't and how to um, uh, minimize or indeed just avoid our risk for ourselves. And we had an amazing little team. Uh, we had Aaron, the DP, and then this amazing guy, James, um, who looks a tiny bit like you, actually, weirdly, but this really cool um, young guy from Seattle who had moved to Japan, aged 18, and learned to speak Japanese perfectly and was a film student and had and was really wonderful. So he was our translator, assistant, um, guide, and it was just me and the DP and the three of us carrying everything on our back. And, and those two, I sort of said to them, you know, after we'd been shooting in Tokyo and Kyoto, and it was okay, we got some nice stuff, but I kind of said to them, I think the story's there. And they said, I expected them to say, well, we're not going there, it's way too scary. They said, I think you're exactly right. Mm. 
and I think we should all go. And, and so we figured out a way. I had a friend that worked at the London Times who was really good at trying to figure out where to get a car, and, and then James knew where to get this to stay. We were staying in this crazy place. I was the only woman in the whole place. It was full of rescue workers, and they had to get the rescue workers out of the female side of the baths. It was like a communal bath Japanese situation. And if I wanted to bathe, which I really did because of we'd been walking the disaster zone all day, then they had to get rid of the guys for a little while for me to go in there and I had to get in the water after they'd all been in there and and it was just it was um, aftershocks all the time and and just difficult situations. But the resilience of the people was amazing and I and I and I had it I had expected I guess to that there would be other people around. And what was horrifying was that um, there weren't really, there were a few people wandering around looking for their houses or looking for their possessions or mm. just sort of trying to figure out what to do. And there weren't that many rescue queues, crews, there were, but they were such a big amount of territory to cover. And um, so I guess normally disaster zones are like a small disaster zone with a lot of media trucks and stuff. That's kind of what I'd been expecting. And instead, just as far as you could see for, you know, 100 miles up the coast, miles inland, devastation with like lone figures kind of walking through the landscape, kind of happy to see you and not a camera in sight. We didn't meet a single other camera the whole time we were there, the whole time. I couldn't believe it. So you kind of felt like you had a responsibility almost to tell the stories and people that we met there kept saying that. They said, has the world forgotten about us? Because the world was, you know, a lot of times it was too difficult for the world to get in there and do too much rescuing. And there was tragic stories actually even about how people had not, people had survived the tsunami and the earthquake, but hadn't been rescued for six days and had died of exposure or starvation or lack of water or, just really sad to think that people had made it, but they, you know, the rescue was so hampered by the complicated circumstances, especially around the fear about the nuclear situation. Um, so it was a really heavy experience, but a really, um, and uh, an occasionally terrifying one, but it was really rewarding. Um, and um, yeah, I was glad to get back and be able to cut that together, which we did very quickly with an amazing Japanese bilingual editor. Mm. And, um, but all the while I was still shooting Kevin footage yeah. just here and there. It's interesting when those figures come up at the end because you don't really get an yeah. idea if, if you just watched the film and you knew nothing about the topic, you maybe wouldn't yeah. get that, that scope of how many people died and were missing based on that. And I, I wanted to bring yeah. it up as like, a comparison with uh, Countdown to Zero because yeah. it's also an advocacy piece and they both they take different kind of I guess approaches to similar topics like you have uh, yeah. Cherry Blossoms is very aesthetically focused it's very it's it's very much the same style yeah. throughout whereas Countdown has to be a little more of a collage because you've got the yeah. the talking heads you've got the street interviews you've got yeah. the uh, aerial shots of cities. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. a city symphony film as well. <laughs> to yeah, that's right. It's got fantastic graphics as well. Yeah. By, um, actually, the same graphic designer did both films. Oh, wow. But, but there's a very different style for both films. Yeah. Very different style. But um, I think the 
graphics in Countdown are remarkable and good too. But yeah, they were very different. I mean, to some extent, Countdown to Zero was a kind of participant house style film, yeah. the call to action over the end credits and stuff like that. And that's not my doing, that's more of a participant film. Yeah. And that was a work for hire more than my other films, which are much more of my personal kind of labors of love. And um, participant had called me up and said, are you interested in nuclear weapons? And I said, yes. I've always been amazed that we were so worried about it in my childhood. I grew up with this nuclear terror growing up in England and all these like terrible paranoid, but it was not paranoid. I mean, gosh, it was, it was a real threat, let's face it. And um, grew up with that terror. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union, even though the nuclear weapons didn't go away, suddenly everyone was so relieved they didn't have to worry about the nuclear weapons anymore. And I'd always felt like, but wait, they're still out there. I feel like it's a horror movie. You know, that was part one of nuclear horror movie. And part two is probably going to be like even worse. And I think it probably is. Um, I think we're kind of gearing up to it now with a lot of countries having nuclear weapons and um, it being even less predictable and safe probably than the Cold War situation. And um, so I felt like it was a really important topic and I wanted to uh, make a film, but it wasn't, um, I didn't have the control I normally would have or it wasn't sort of my idea. And, and, um, and I'd actually wanted to do more verite stuff, but it was impossible to get access. I mean, it was just, we couldn't get access to anything, which is maybe a good thing. And, given that it's nuclear weapons, so kind of, but also we didn't get access to people, everything was classified, people wouldn't say anything on camera. Um, it was really tough to kind of scrape together anything interesting. Um, and then when I did, like I actually got an amazing interview with A.Q. Khan, but mm. none of the producers wanted to put it in, <laughs> which I thought was like the most incredible footage, but, um, but really heavy. And, um, so, yeah, it's, that was a different kind of a project, but Tsunami was definitely really tight and made very quickly by uh, just me and a very small team, amazing, amazing producer, amazing team. And, um, and I think structurally it, it really shows the devastation of the tsunami and then the beauty of the blossoms. And it's, it's a real diptych, it's a really, it's quite a formal, and yet experimental film in some ways. Um, and yet another way it really follows a strong narrative arc. It starts with the tsunami, it ends with the blossom coming to the same area that the tsunami hit. It even has, bookends with, with the, the same shot from the same hill, which I really like. So it's kind of got its formal um, unities. And, um, and yet the people are so remarkable and they speak so openly and eloquently, which is not what people expect from Japanese mm. people as well, how incredibly courageous they were in telling their stories emotionally, devastatingly as they do. But it's all very organized in this, um, even though it's less of a narrative structure because you, don't, you're, you meet different people along the way uh, of telling the story. It's not like you're following one character throughout. Yeah. Um, but still there is a deep structure that's very specific, which is that it starts with devastation and it's and, and moves to carrying on. For some people, hopefully other people can't maybe manage that, but they can at least manage to get up and move forward. Mm. Um, and for me, the film is very much about that process in sort of in a deep way of how do human beings go from being knocked back 
as dreadfully as you can imagine to being able to move forward as elegantly uh, and hopefully as they do. Mm. The interviews are, are interesting in those and, and, and Crash Reel, but mm. I, like, Wasteland doesn't really have that many. It's, it's interesting and it seems like Blindsight didn't really either. They're all stuck in there. It's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it's all verite, yeah. but there's like a lot of... Um, there's a lot of stuff sort of uh, smoothed in there yeah. to tell the story, I think. Well, one thing that's interesting about Wasteland is that in artist doc, they fascinate me yeah. because it's like you're seeing all the things that the artist doesn't necessarily include or yeah. you're getting more the, their point of view and not like yeah. their expression. And I found that interesting. Like how, how is it yeah. shooting something like that where you're seeing someone create something and know that, oh, maybe they're not going to include that, but I'm, I'm documenting yeah. it in my artistic expression. Interesting. I, um, interesting. I loved it. I mean, I kind of felt like, well, Vic's work was so visually compelling yeah. that that was great. And it was a great process to follow. Um, and I love the fact that you have the finished paintings and that you have the whole journey of making them and that you meet people along the way for me it's 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 all like a play on portraiture mm. you know I'm making as you're saying exactly right but I found it fascinating I was making a portrait of Vic making portraits of these people who are using the stuff that they deal with every day and and then the film became about how them looking at the portraits of themselves might change both themselves and also the artist and so it became a whole play of frame within a frame yeah. within a frame and I really dug that and um, it was never really there was never really an issue or anything like that like um, uh, it was never there was never anything that we wanted to include Vic never took um, any uh, sort of control over the edit. Mm. I don't think that was to his great credit. He um, just let uh, me do what I wanted in the editing room. And um, I think that was a great mark of his kind of artistic respect that he just let the film be the film and I let his paintings be his paint just mm. as I wouldn't touch his amazing pieces. Um, but it was very collaborative. I mean, the whole project was very collaborative from the beginning in a way that was really interesting. How that project began was I was interested, introduced to Vic by uh, our co-producer, Peter Martin, and we liked each other's work. I'd seen his work back when I lived in New York, and I just had a excitement about it. And I, I start with, I, I couldn't make, uh, I couldn't get an idea together for a film. Peter had initially introduced me and thought maybe I'd like to do a slideshow about the history of art because Vic did a really cool slideshow about the history of art and I wanted to see the slideshow but I didn't want to make a film about it because I thought gosh that's just not it's like screen death you know it's not it's not the kind of film I want to make so I was very upfront about that and I was like I don't know how to make that film any good but I really like Vic so I want to meet him so we just met and we just hit it off and then he invited me to his studio in New York, which is where I went a couple months later, and we just kept talking, and I kept sort of looking for a way to make a film. And um, I had visited a landfill in New York, Fresh Kills in Staten Island, and um, 
had this great revelation years earlier um, and thought it was the most wild location and I couldn't believe that everything I threw away wound up in a place like this. I just was aghast that I hadn't really taken sufficient consideration of what waste I was putting into the world. And I just thought, wow, everyone should see a landfill. It just turns your stomach and would change behavior just like that. Just made a mental note to myself, put landfill scene in next movie. <laughs> and so just, I was trying everything with Vic. We spent days talking in his studio in New York about how we might make a film together. And he's done, he's working all kinds of different materials from dust on the floor to pigments to peanut butter and jelly and all kinds of stuff. And finally at one point I said, oh, have you ever worked in garbage? And I just had this idea because I'd known how interesting garbage is. And he said, oh, I've always had an idea that I'd like to work in garbage, but it's too hard. And I said, ooh, too hard, thinking <laughs> that sounds like screen dynamite. Like, too hard is definitely exactly how we like things on screen, right? And um, and so we got talking about that, and it just seemed like that was a project. He said he'd wanted to do a project in a, in a garbage dump in Rio, and I instantly thought, wow, that'd be amazing. And I said, oh, do you have those pickers in Brazil? Because I'd seen a movie with the people who recycle by hand, and I thought, wow. And it, it, it blew my mind how rich he was. And he'd grown up very poor in Brazil, and he was now so wealthy. He was literally sort of printing cash, <laughs> you know, because he was making these art prints that were worth a fortune. And he was sort of so wealthy now, but really reflected on his poor childhood with great um, interesting feelings. And so I kind of thought that was a really interesting way if he went back to Brazil and and would do a piece in collaboration with these incredibly poor people. And I knew as an artist, he was incredibly good at explaining his process to non-artists. And I thought that would be very cinematic. And um, I hope the Catadoras, the Pickers would be fascinating characters. I was actually a bit afraid. I didn't realize how amazing they would be. I thought they might be more troubled than they are. I mean, they're troubled by life, but sort of psychically in themselves, they're very balanced and very easy to deal with people. I thought that they'd be throwing garbage at us and screaming and maybe have drug or mental health um, issues. Um, and instead, they were just the coolest, loveliest environmental stewards I could have ever imagined. Um, and so, um, and then I instantly already thought, like, what would happen if he sold his humongously expensive paintings and gave them back recycled them to the recyclers. Mm -hmm. And I instantly thought, well, that would be a beginning, middle, and end, you know. So I liked that a lot. And and afterwards, Vic kept coming up with new ideas or new conversations, and I kept saying, no, 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 that's the one. And all you'd have to do is just call me if you ever started it. Don't talk to your wife, don't look at Google Earth, don't do anything. Just let me get a camera crew here before you even talk to your assistant. And, and um, uh, and then we'll just film it from the very beginning. And then a couple of weeks later he called me, and a couple of weeks later after that we were filming what's now the beginning of the movie. In yeah. fact, I actually um, just dug out a trailer I'd made because after that shoot I went to Cannes Film Festival with a like 10 minute piece I made um, that was to sell the movie. And we had a meeting with O2 Films mm. who became our production partner in Brazil. and. Um, 
I had made a trailer to show them and we had this meeting and it was a disaster. Imagine the worst meeting you've ever had in your life and like times it by 10. I've never experienced a meeting like this. We had this meeting and there was like nobody had any coffee and everyone was jet lagged and exhausted and didn't want to have made a meeting at 9am but there we were trying to meet at 9am but nobody, no waiters in sight to get any coffee. And then they said, this is a documentary. <laughs> we were like, yes, it's a documentary. Didn't you read the email? And um, and so they just looked horrified because the documentaries don't do very well in Brazil. I mean, they don't do in Brazil at all. I mean, they just don't get released there. And and then we said, but it's great. It's about a garbage dump. <laughs> and then I just, you just could feel the energy draining out of the conversation. And I actually said, you know what? I don't want to waste your time. I'm so sorry if it's not the project that you're looking for. It's so nice to meet you. We wanted to meet you because we love City of God. and. And I just thought it might be a project for you, but if it's not, I don't want to waste your time. And they said, okay, thank you, we'll stop the meeting. And I said, but I did make a trailer I'd love for you to see. And then a couple of weeks later they called and they loved the trailer. And also thought that they could get some Brazilian government money because it was kind of, uh, we couldn't get the film money so much as the social project money. <laughs> so I think that the people were so poor that there was a social project sort of box that they could check. And um, so we could um, apply for um, Ancini money, oh, which yeah. is Brazilian soft money that was really good. So that um, was how we got um, that film financed. But it was a great story about you never know how things are going to turn around. Because I swear that was the worst meeting I've ever had in my whole life. And we walked away joking about it would be not possible to have a worse meeting. Mm. And it turned out to be um, the golden key opening the golden door right there. Mm. So, yeah, so that's how that all came about. Um, and so it was very collaborative with Vic, and, and yet day to day it was um, just amazing to, to piggyback on what he was doing and um, really document the whole journey. I think one of the great strengths of that film is that it does start from the very beginning, mm. and you start again a bit like with Crash Reel you don't get ahead of yourself in the story you know you are with Vic and actually what we shot in New York was actually the beginning of the movie the trailer oh. is very similar to the beginning of the movie it's fun to see the trailer now because you can see that the whole film was kind of we had I hadn't even been to Brazil yet when I made that and yet the whole thing is kind of laid out and um, uh, so um, yeah it was fun to on that journey and film him before he knew, before he'd gone to judging Gramacho, the garbage dump, and just follow him on the whole mm. journey all the way through, meeting the people for the first time and just the whole story happening. Was the film you men uh, mentioned inspiring you, was that The Gleaners and I by Agnes Ferguson? No, that's another film that I love, but um, the, um, there's a film called, about a tomato, it's a Brazilian film actually, uh, no, Garden, Ilha das Flores, The Island of Flowers, which is a, traces the life cycle of a tomato, was one film that I loved. I went to this whole season of garbage films <laughs> at this garbage seminar, which is where I went to the um, uh, landfill as a field trip. And Ilha das Flores is a Brazilian movie about the life cycle of a tomato that's fantastic, a classic, classic, classic short film. And... Um, there's another one that was sort of just, I don't know what country it was in, but it was more of a sort of info, old school reel about pickers and how poor they are and 
um, gosh, these poor people mm. kind of a feeling. And very much more sentimental, old school kind of older documentary. And, um, and so I think ours is a very different one than that, but it gave me the idea, oh wait, do they have those people that recycle? And we have them too, I guess, as well. In North America, you know, people are always picking up cans yeah, and returning yeah. them. We have pickers too. But Gleaners and I, I love that film, but um, was um, uh, not, yeah, not, not, I didn't have that particularly in mind. The reason I ask, and it applies to everyone you mentioned, though, is like this yeah. dynamic of the relationship between the person being documented and the yeah. person documenting them in this because of the class differences and things like that. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that the documentary can show that in a way that the portraiture can't. And I yeah. found that like the debates surrounding that to be the like most interesting aspect in that film, like yeah. two thirds of the way when it's like, wait, maybe maybe this will like affect them in a negative way. Oh, there's this way. great scene, yeah, where the artist argues with his wife and his yeah. assistant about whether one of the catadores should go to London for yeah. the big auction. And it, it kind of rhymed yeah. with um, your preceding film and the, the discussion about like exactly whether it's right. good to keep pushing on that's because exactly right. it's an intermediary that's making that decision. And, yeah. and the, the documentary is somewhat involved as well, right? Because it's yeah. also part of this um, documenting process where these people become kind of images and yeah. and what's interesting is they both end similarly which is that it's positive like Tashi yeah. it becomes more performative as like a human being and that's seen yeah. as a positive and it yeah. clearly goes well is that something you were expecting or is that just a fortuitous I didn't know uh, with Wei Sam whether it was going to be a yeah. positive story I um, honestly thought that we might have garbage thrown at us or we might be murdered. <laughs> There'd been this awful story about a journalist who'd been necklaced, yeah, they'd yeah. set fire to her tires around his neck. So I was very afraid. Oh, excuse me, some tea. I was afraid that, um, I was afraid, oh, also, also I was very afraid of everything. I, and I had so many jabs before I went, I couldn't move my arms. And But I think what you're saying is really interesting. I guess what I try to do with the camera is to some extent that you can take the pressure off the camera running the situation. You know, especially when I was doing my film Blindsight Up Everest, um, my worst nightmare was that the um, presence of the camera would inspire somebody to do something dangerous and somebody would get hurt. That was my worst fear. And so I'd constantly be this buzzkill who would say don't do that for camera <laughs> you know the mountaineers would say let's go up there the view's spectacular and I'd say yes but the kids are blind we've got plenty of spectacular views so I mean if you want to go up there don't let me stop you but I just want to flag that we do not need it for the film mm. do not do anything for the film that you do not want to be doing regardless of the film but it was really worrying I mean I was so nervous and up awake all night frantically sweating about would anyone be hurt and the interesting thing about that film is that um, the blind kids you know who'd had such sheltered lives and were blind Tibetan kids so you might think they wouldn't be so astute in ways of the West or whatever and some of them had had these horrifically deprived childhoods like locked up in the back rooms of their houses and not allowed to even go out or go to school and yet they were so smart and I remember particularly one of them saying um, to me, they were kind of, they were American guides and the blind kids would sometimes 
hold onto their arm or sometimes listen to a bell in the back of their backpack or sometimes use a cane and they had different ways of being guided but um, uh, this one kid said hey Jeff whenever you're talking to Lucy and I touch your arm you make it really big like this why do you do that and I thought boy even the blind kids can see that um, they're like posing for the camera. They're like pumping their biceps. So they all look buffed. Mm -hmm. It just reminded me like everyone's showing off for the camera all the time. And, and, it, and, it, and I try to sort of just take some of that pressure off. Um, but it's, it's obviously there, you know, obviously observer's paradox. I mean, you, you're affecting everything and yeah. you, you just can't get around that. But you can just try and be responsible, I guess, for it. But what I kind of really like is when the drama of a scene, the inherent, like what's going on is so important that people actually need to communicate because mm. then they, nothing will make people forget about the camera quicker than actually a real debate. That's one thing. And then another thing is um, in both the argument at advanced base camp at 21,500 feet on Everest, when there's a giant row that erupts about what the hell they're doing anyway and should they go down and is it dangerous and are they lying to each other or what is going on? And then when the artist and his wife and his assistant all argue about what maybe they're not having a good effect, maybe they, maybe they can make themselves feel better but they're actually having a horrible effect with these you know, sort of tantalizing people with a ticket out of the garbage dump only to throw them right back. And um, I love these debates because I feel like that's the question you're asking yourself when you're on these expeditions or on these journeys of making these films. It's like, what is the effect we're having here? What are we doing here? What are we trying to prove to who? And how does it play out? And you're asking all these questions. So that's the real reality of the situation. And what I love about making documentaries is actually if you just really pay attention, that, that reality will have a habit of like just busting itself out. It can't hide for too long. You know, life is we're not very good at like pretending um, for too long. The kind of reality will surface and, and your job is to kind of sort of lay in wait for it and, and capture it when it does. And, and it's really fascinating. It makes for really dynamic, when really dy dynamic scenes when they're really arguing about what the hell they're doing at all. Hmm. So those scenes are very comparable. I think that's exactly right. Thank you, Lucy. All right. Mm -hmm got the call. I was going to link it to Devil's Playground as well. I'll just keep... But you're down. so good. Like, that was really impressive that the, um, all the questions kept rolling back a movie. That was